Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Paul Olabayo Presents The Conversation. My guest this week is Tracy Jawad. Tracy is a Lebanese citizen, a political researcher and writer who has worked with the United Nations in New York City and the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut. At the time of recording, Tracy's most recent publication is entitled Lookman Slim's Assassination, A Warning, and looks at the death of free speech within Lebanon. Links to which can be found in the description of this episode. My conversation with Tracy focuses upon the state of affairs within Lebanon six and a half months on from the August 4th explosion at the Beirut port, which claimed the lives of more than 200 people and affected so many more. Within this conversation, we touch upon a number of different things, um, including, but not limited to, the myth of the global economy, the need for accountability and the populations who are left behind following large-scale violations such as this one. Tracy has also been kind enough to provide the names and links to a number of mental health organizations within Lebanon doing amazing work, all of which can be found within the description. I am deeply, deeply thankful to Tracy for her honesty and insight into what was an extremely personal recount of her experiences and the state of affairs within Lebanon today. And without further ado, I present to you the conversation with Tracy Shawad. Right, and welcome to um, this edition of the conversation. Um, I am your host, Paul Olabayo, and I'm here with my guest today, um, Tracy Shawad. Um, I've already given you a short introduction, Tracy, and I feel like the people have already heard enough of my voice. So I'd love for you to just give them an introduction of who you are from your perspective, um, what you do, some hobbies, anything. The floor is yours. All right. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm Tracy Jawad, and I'm a political researcher and a writer who's worked at the United Nations and the Carnegie Mellon Institute for Peace in the Middle East. And currently I am a writer at Kayani, which is a foundation for fem Palestinian females. Amazing, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, I'm really excited for this. And, you know, we've had conversations um, off the mic about where we wanted to go with this conversation today. Um, my, my reason for bringing you on and asking you to be a guest on this were, were varied and multi-layered. I think your experiences in Spain, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and obviously, of course, in your home country of Lebanon, bring such an inter international perspective to so many different <clears throat> to so many different issues that I felt was really important to get out there. Um, so, to give the people a brief introduction of what we're going to be talking about today, um, we're going to be discussing the state of affairs in Lebanon um, as they are, but specifically as it pertains to to the rights of women and um, Specifically, we want to get into this idea of just the myth of a global economy, especially in the myth, especially in the midst of the explosion and the devastating blast that happened in Beirut almost six and a half months ago now, um, and also in the context of the, the COVID-19 international pandemic, which has swept the world and affected nations all across the world, but has of course affected every nation in different ways. Um, okay, so I think, you know, where I would love to start is to just lay out, you know, the blast and, and what we know. Um, we're, yeah. almost six, we're about six and a half months removed from mm -hmm. that devastating blast, which obviously swept, swept news waves and we saw it all over social media and we saw that devastating video 
and, and different images. Um, so to my count, there, or to the counts I've seen, there's 204 confirmed um, who have passed away, passed away as a result of the blast, over 6,500 injured, and obviously an unclassified amount of ammonium nitrate left at the port. Um, you know, Tracy, I wanted to start by asking you, again, as specific or as vague as you feel comfortable with getting, what was your personal experience or relationship of the blast? Where were you? How did it take you? How did it affect you? Just, again, as specific or as vague as you feel like you want to get at this time. Yes. So at the time of the blast, I was living in East Windsor, New Jersey. And this was because I had left to the United States back in January 2020, to start my internship with the United Nations. And because the United Nations offers unpaid internships, I couldn't afford to live in New York City. So I lived with my uncle who lived in New Jersey at the time. And as we all know, uh, COVID hit sometime in March. And so I was confined to New Jersey for the rest of my internship. And because in around June, I decided to move to Spain uh, I was waiting on my visa, so I couldn't go back down to Lebanon on one of the last few flights that went from the U.S. back to Lebanon. Um, and so the day of the blast, I was, I had just arrived from Seattle. I had visited a friend of mine in Seattle, and she as well, she's Palestinian Jordanian, but we were raised together in Lebanon. She had moved there when she was 13. So I had just arrived the day after, and ironically, I had rescheduled an appointment um, with a doctor of mine who's based in Lebanon um, to have that appointment at 11 a.m. my time, so 6 p.m. Lebanon time. So that Tuesday, I remember it was a Tuesday morning, um, you know, just opened up my laptop waiting for my doctor to come on. And about six minutes, I think, I want to say six to eight minutes into our call, my doctor, who I'm experiencing, like I'm, I'm watching her on FaceTime, she just start shaking. And the first thing she says to me is, I think there's an earthquake. And I'm, and I'm thinking strange because Lebanon is not known for having earthquakes, especially one that would shake the screen. And then instantly I saw my doctor fall to the floor and she had just last line she told me was to call my mother. Uh, and then she hung up and the lines were all cut in Lebanon, of course, and uh, in Beirut, not Lebanon. And so my experience was very much a watching it as it happens situation. And it wasn't coming from the news. It was, it was me watching it unfold. And my heart, I just remember was pounding. I didn't know what was going on. And I couldn't get a hold of my mom or my brother immediately. And I was checking Twitter. So at the time I still did have Twitter and I was checking to see what had happened. And instantly I saw the blast, right? So the videos were coming out of a blast that had happened, but it was smoke initially. So it started off with lots of people seeing clouds of smoke in the air in the port uh, and the sound wave of that blast didn't occur until a few minutes later. So I'm assuming that was the point in which my doctor had fallen to the ground. Um, fortunately, I was one of those people who did get in contact with my brother immediately and knew that he was okay. Got into contact with my mother immediately as well. She was okay. We all live in Beirut. So my family home is based in Beirut and so I had no idea what was going on. And I remember contacting my friends. So of course my friends from home, we have a group chat and I'm sending them. I'm the first person finding out about this because the one abroad who was on the phone with my doctor, I'm saying, guys, something's happened in Beirut, no idea what. And I think the natural thing for a lot of us to think of was war because this is not the first time Lebanon has found itself in the position where, you know, 
neighboring countries like Israel may attack us and the port is a very strategic place to attack. Um, and no one had any idea what was going on. I just remember a few minutes after that had happened, I just sat in the corner of my room sobbing because I just kept seeing these videos and people started messaging me, um, really kind messages of I've seen what's happened. I hope everything with your family, like I hope everybody in your family is okay. And I just collapsed. I think I'd never felt so far away from Lebanon in my life. I've been there through at least the recent war. So I was there for the 2006, 2006 war, the 2008 war. Um, it really wasn't until I left Lebanon. After that, no experience had made me feel farther away from home. Um, and that's because we had seen a relative calm or stability in the country since 2016. And even during the October 2019 revolution, I was lucky enough to be home. And that was, so when the blast happened, it was a moment I felt that, that like my life had changed. Um, my hunt, like my country had changed, my, my city had changed. And I immediately texted friends of mine also living in the US, making sure that their families were okay. Some people were not hearing back. And I don't even think there's a word to describe how devastating those moments were um, and how regretful I was that I wasn't in the country. Like, and a lot of people called it diaspora guilt of wanting to be there so badly. Um, and I, I couldn't even put my, I couldn't even say guilt was the, the feeling I was feeling. It was, I don't, it felt like I was cut off from something and it was, I was, it was part of an experience I would no longer fit into. It was, it was something that my mother, and my brother went through that I didn't go through. Um, and I, my uncle, who's also Lebanese, but had been living in the U.S. for 20 years, was at work and I had called him and I was explaining to him what had happened and he had already gone in contact with my grandma, who was in Tripoli at the time, so another city, but her house had essentially fallen to pieces. Um, all the windows in her house had just like blown apart, there was glass everywhere, so thankfully she was not home. Um, our house, my building faces away from the sea, so the only um, kind of impact was on one of our windows. Um, but I was just, all these stories were coming in of people's houses destroyed and images and videos and news sources. And I, I just couldn't think of what could possibly lead to this. Um, and, you know, like stats later came out that, and people started calling it Beirushima because they were saying this is the largest man-made explosion in recent history. Um, and it, overnight, the kind of Lebanon that I'd grown up in, so I grew up in a period of relative calm for Lebanon. My father's generation, my grandparents' generation, a lot of people knew Beirut as, well, people used to call it Baghdad. It's like people would always joke about, oh, isn't Beirut just like Baghdad? And I'd be like, not anymore, not for us. I grew up in a relatively stable, I put air quotes on stable, um, time in Beirut. And um, overnight, I became the focus of the world. And I say I because I associate myself so closely with Beirut and Lebanon mm -hmm. as well. And suddenly people were, it, of course, they were sending such kind messages. I just felt like it was pity. And I had so much anger at that time. And I distanced myself from a lot of friends who were not Lebanese. Um, and I expressed a lot of unnecessary anger at them because I felt like to explain what I had gone through, they would just, it was unimaginable to them because a lot of my friends are from England or France or um, Italy. And some of them are even from countries like Libya or Egypt, but suddenly like all eyes were on Beirut and I had felt like the small child in front of them. Like you are watching my country crumble. You are watching my people beg for money and 
beg for aid because our government can't even provide us for that. And um, it was a really difficult time. And what was more difficult is that the next day, if you asked any Lebanese person living outside of Lebanon at the time, they were glued to their phones. As in the only information we had was coming from family or friends and videos and photos. And we just wanted to know what was going. And I stayed up all night that night and I, I just needed to make sure that things were okay. And I wasn't answering any of my messages unless they were pe from people in Lebanon. And the next day, people started going down. I remember the first thing, first thing in the morning, my best friend who was in Lebanon at the time, um, who didn't even process what had just happened. And we had taken about an hour or so before we could reach her. She was just on the streets. Like just, she grabbed a mop. I think she grabbed like a broom, a mop. A, I don't need like a bag to put in glass pieces into it. And she just went down there and so many people came down to, to clean up the city as soon as this explosion happened. And I think that even feel, made me feel further away from the country because there was nothing I wanted to do more than be there and cleaning up the, the glass and the debris, everything. And thinking back to that time, it was those few weeks, I've never felt more angry. And I don't, I, I think alienated is the right word to use here. I think that delivers the power and intensity of what I felt. Um, alienated from my homeland, alienated from my people. Um, and yeah, that, that was my experience. Um, and I would say this, it doesn't even come close to some of the experiences people felt or experienced while living in Beirut at the time. My own brother um, experienced a lot of post-trauma after that. And I felt like I was no longer in a position to speak to him because I was in a nice little suburban home in New Jersey. Like I, I didn't, I couldn't speak to that experience. I couldn't even relate to it. Um, so it's always a time in which I feel some sort of shame for not being in the country. Mm. So yeah, that was my experience. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing. Um, you know, I, I resonate with a lot of what you said. Um, not, nowhere near to the level, but I just, as you were speaking, I was just picturing back to even myself, how I felt October 20th, the Lekki Tollgate massacre in Nigeria. Um, I'm someone who's, I'm, more or less completely diaspora right I, I wasn't born in Nigeria I wasn't raised I was born in the United Kingdom I was raised in the United Kingdom but I have family in, in Nigeria you know I have loved ones in Nigeria my heart is still in Nigeria and so mm -hmm. when I'm the same thing on social media seeing this play out and the only information I'm getting really is from people who are like on the ground maybe 10 minutes away it's it's devastating right and and it really hurts the soul um and I think you know you articulated that so well in what you just said I think you know one question that I think I, I would like to lead on to is just you're not you're back in Beirut now um at the time that yes. we're, we're speaking you're in Beirut how has the to, to your eye and to your knowledge how has the blast affected people in terms of the difference between the diaspora and those who will happen to be there at the time um you know, you spoke about your best friend there who the next day mm -hmm. was on the street cleaning up. You spoke about, you know, your brother and, and the, the stresses that he felt. And again, not to get as specific or as vague as you feel comfortable with getting, just that, that, that difficulty in, in balancing the two and the differences between the two. There is definitely 
a huge difference now between the diaspora community and those that live on the ground. And I think there always has been a difference. There is characteristics that people grew up in Beirut having that people who grew up in the U.S. didn't, even though they come from a Lebanese family. However, I think since being back, the explosion has come up, I think, in almost every conversation I've had with somebody my age or, you know, my my mother, my my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles. It is what COVID-19 is to the world in which it's this conversation that everybody keeps coming back to. The blast is the conversation we always get back to. And I feel very ostracized from it because like I said earlier, I wasn't there. And even if I try to pretend I'm not part of the diaspora community and I say, oh, I was only away for university and I was only away for my one internship, I think now there's a very clean, clear line between those who must stay and those who get to leave. And I think it's important to mention that the blast happened on the backs of an economic crisis in Lebanon. Um, there's been 80% devaluation in our currency. Uh, hyperinflation is at its worst. Prices are soaring. People cannot afford to live here anymore. And um, salaries and wages are not matching up to those prices. So, and including that COVID-19. So the lockdown before that, Lebanon had COVID-19 under control because there were some really effective lockdown measures happening. And so the explosion just kind of wreaked havoc on the entire nation. So even though this happened in the city, so the capital, it meant terrible things for those living in Tripoli or those living in Slida or those living in Baalbek, which are other cities in the country, because that meant nobody could even know if they could get to work. And at the same time, they had to think about COVID-19. And they also had to think about the fact that the price of bread was soaring and all those grievances that the people of Lebanon were experiencing, the people abroad were not. Yes, some people abroad may have needed to send money back for donation reasons or maybe to their family as remittances. Um, that experience of being in a safe country will forever triumph over the experience of what people went through on the day of the blast. And a lot of people I think who stayed or were in Lebanon post blast or during the blast almost resented people who, who were feeling quote unquote guilty for not being there because my mother couldn't be happier that I wasn't there. The fact that my mother didn't even have to think about calling me, the fact that she didn't have to think about where, what has happened to my daughter, is she alive, is she injured? Um, not a lot of people had that luxury. A lot of people's parents were running around looking for their children, some of whom they've lost, you know, and um, hospitals were crowded. And I just, when I think back to the images that I saw, I feel wrong to even associate myself with, with, that, with that experience, even if I was experiencing it abroad in a completely different manner. And I think what the diaspora did was amazing. They, they did the best that they could do. They had pulled in money, donations, constant social media posting, which is, I think in our day and age, we do that as a sense of helplessness. So when someone feels helpless about the situation, which you were talking about from your family back in Nigeria, when we're helpless, we want to help in any way that we can. Um, and I think social media has taken on that role for us. And we think that by like sharing or posting donation links, we're doing something and we are, so many donations came in. But the people that are on the ground, they deleted their social media. They were experiencing this real time. They were the ones who had to deal with the consequences. They were the ones who had to 
I would, I want to say pick up after the mess of the government, but that, that sounds very simplistic. Mm. That's not the case. Um, and I think there, they grew some tension between those abroad and those in Lebanon. And, um, since being here, I've definitely felt that tension. I feel it with my brother every day. I think I look at him and I think, I feel like his sense of future planning has been lost because he's still processing whatever happened back in August. And I, and I say my brother, because I think he's a representation of the youth today. And I've seen it in a lot of other people. And I think people used to say Lebanon is the happiest depressed people alive. I never really used to understand that saying, because I was like, we're still depressed. We, we don't have functioning electricity, but there was a pulse to the city and all other parts of the country as well. And coming back, my personal experience has been that there is a pulse to the city, but it's not the same city anymore. And people are on the streets begging for medicine. They are begging for food. They are begging for any money um, to continue living. And it's no longer a case of, you know, you have refugees coming in from Syria who will beg on the streets. You have a case of Syrians, Palestinians, and Lebanese people now on the streets doing something that is so alien to us in our culture and it, that is begging you know it, the idea of asking other people for help is alien in our culture and not in a way in which you, you help one community member like you would your like another but as in being on the streets and seriously saying I can't afford a loaf of bread and that line between those abroad and those here has just it's grown it's grown it's grown wider um so that the gulf between us is is much wider and I myself now say I'm I'm diaspora. I, I don't I don't get to pretend that I experience the things people here are experiencing or the things that someone like my brother were of the same family were of the same background. I don't get to say I'm going through the same things that he is. That's unfair. And and I see that he also doesn't accept it and doesn't agree with it. You know, I think um what what you just articulated touches so perfectly on something that you know we had wanted to discuss when we did our, our planning meeting um you know in human rights a lot of the time we deal with this trend of sensationalism mm -hmm. um where people see a violation they see a human rights incident and they clamor to the most devastating aspect of the violation in the context of course that we're talking about it's obviously the blast that happened and and the loss of life um but in doing so, what typically happens is there's just a sheer overlooking of all the other violations, which may not be as huge or as big as the one that we see on social media, that we see on the news, but sometimes are even more devastating. Um, and I wonder if you could just maybe articulate that a little bit more, because, of course, we're talking now in the context of those who are left behind. Like you said, in the, mm -hmm. the nation has changed. Um, like you said, there's that culture of begging a changing mm -hmm. in the fabric of the way the nation works you know you, yes. you you don't see the same Beirut or the same Lebanon that you had seen growing up or that you had potentially even just seen in January of 2020 can you speak to that that change a little bit more and help people understand that the violation that we see and the mm -hmm. the the real difficult the challenges that people face aren't just the one moment that makes it onto social media it's the six yes. and a half months of change that come later Yes, and I think this was the angle we agreed on because it is an angle that's hardly ever discussed. And this is coming from someone who will consume any kind of media about Lebanon, like whether it be film, literature, articles. 
nobody ever talks about the life people live after such an explosion occurs. And also nobody really talks about the lives of Syrians still living in Syria after the war because there is an aspect of sensationalism in the way we consume media today. And I think that comes from the instant gratification we have in the way that we consume everything around us. And I think that's why apps like Instagram and TikTok work no matter how sick we are of them because they constantly give us new information. And you're not gonna get new information from the people that stay behind because the people staying behind, they're waking up in the morning, they're going forward with their daily routine and you know they are doing their best to survive. You will hear about the people fleeing those countries, rightfully so, because they flee those countries in such dangerous um, ways that you know, you want to keep up with those stories. Will they make it to the shore? Will the countries be blocking them? What countries put up their walls? Um, there's a story there. There's a heroic story. And I think even from anybody who's read the Odyssey or the synopsis of the Odyssey knows that the hero's journey is the one we want to follow. Nobody really cares about the people that stay behind because you either interpret it as weakness. For instance, you don't like you don't have the judge to to get up and leave or you interpret it as mundane or you interpret it as you can stay for instance you have the money to stay a lot of people who stay behind in syria are wealthy elite they're they're able to survive in damascus they're able to continue with their jobs so that story gets forget it for, that story gets forgotten um in the media and um i think when it came to the blast the story should have been about the people who stayed um and the people who stayed and lost their who, and lost people in their lives. For instance, uh, Alexander Najad was, I believe, a three-year-old girl who had lost her life to the blast. Her parents still live here. They wake up every single morning and they think this country took my child away from me, and they're still here. They haven't left. They are not in a new country with new experiences and new memories. They are awake to that memory every single day, and also they probably drive by the port every single day as well. And so that angle for me is a very important angle to take because since coming here, I've realized that the entire fabric of the society I grew up in has not only changed, it's, it's morphed itself into a society that I don't even recognize. Um, and I think that comes off the back of a crippling economy from hyperinflation. Um, and that came, as I explained earlier, from financial engineering agreements and a failing banking sector and the repercussions of clientelism and corruption. So just to add it in there, clientelism is the exchange of goods and services for political support, which in Lebanon is very prevalent. So people in the past were open about their clientelism. Cool, this person, this party leader, we call them in Arabic Zwama, this party leader will give me what I need and I will give him his political support. Now they're trapped in that vicious cycle of giving the same people that caused this mess, caused the explosion, their political support because in a, under a crippling economy, who's going to turn around and say, no, I'm not going to support you anymore. You've led to the death of my child. You've led to the death of 200 other Lebanese citizens. You have destroyed our court you've destroyed our economy. You can't, we're in a vicious cycle. And so I think that has truly influenced the way that the society has changed because people are now hopeless, completely and utterly hopeless in a way that I've never seen Lebanon before. Um, there was a saying that, oh, this is Lebanon. This is what Lebanon is gonna be like. This is our fate. And the, the idea of that, nobody wants to change it. Nobody's even attempting to, I think. You know, you have amazing organizations, you have amazing, amazing like youth candidates and activists coming forward and saying, no, we can change this country. And 
just yesterday I was having a conversation with my uncle and he was, and he lives in Lebanon right now. And he said, no, this isn't a country. How are you going to change it? As soon as people are going to be called to separate into their different camps, so whether that be religious camps, sectarian camps, political camps, they will go back and they will fight for those camps. And I, for the first time ever, I had to agree with him. I had to say, yeah, I, I do think that there is no way out. And that has essentially been where the change in society has come from. And while we're still a culture, I'd, still, I'd like to believe we're still a culture of helping others and that you will always support the people in your community and provide them with whatever you can. It has become a very individualistic society because right now my mother just cares about feeding me and my brother. You know, she's a single mother. She's working on continuing. My brother's still at university, so she needs to pay his tuition fees in something that we call fresh dollars. Um, so we're saying to say to someone who may not understand, but basically because of the devaluation of our currency, fresh dollars from abroad or fresh dollars in someone's account are very valuable right now. And university fees or school fees are, you're expected to say, pay a certain percentage of that in fresh dollars, which means you're losing out on a lot of money in Lebanon. Um, and so she's, she's not focused anymore on the rest of her country. She doesn't care and she'll openly say it. She's like, I, I'm not in a position to sit here and think about my neighbor. I have to think about my children. She can't access her money in the bank, meaning she can't transfer me any money abroad. Thankfully, I'm financially stable, but that means she also can't access her money. If she'd like to pay for something, if she'd like to book a flight, if she'd like to purchase a gift for herself or a gift for my brother or anything, she doesn't even have the agency to do that. So you've not only stripped these people of hope, you've stripped them, you've, you've humiliated them. And you've made them feel as though there's nobody watching out for them. No state, no government, they're people. I think some people are starting to get very, I don't know what the word would be, like they're suspicious of others, um, of who, who actually is with the country and who's against the country, who wants proxies in the country, whether that be Saudi Arabia or Iran or the US, and who wants a united front. And I even feel like I have that tension with people my age. And I think that comes from seeing what they post on social media. So I try to minimize what I post on social media purely because I don't want to cause that rift. I don't want to have that resentment or hatred towards somebody who might not agree with me. And as a result, I, we've somehow come, all, come out a stronger society because so many people came down that day after that blast. So I know there's a lot of love and I know there's a lot of care and I know people deeply care about this country in ways that sometimes I think is so unique to the country. And a lot of Arab people have said this to us before by Arab, I mean, people coming from Egypt, people coming from Saudi Arabia, um, people coming from Syria. They will say like the way Lebanese people love their country is unnatural. And I think that be that is because we have the sad, sad nostalgia of what the country could have been. And I don't think we can go back there anymore because this country can't be anything anymore. We don't have a functioning port. Um, we've lost so many lives since August and there's no investigation happening into the blast right now. And as of yesterday, some of our MPs have just skipped the line for vaccinations and decided to, to just vaccinate themselves because they can, even though not, some of them were not high risk. So. Every day there's more reason to, to believe less and less in, in the future of this country. And that is where all the change has come from. And it's been difficult to be here as a result. You know, you've mentioned the economy a few times, right? Mm -hmm. And I want to get into that in a second. But before I do, I, I just want to touch on something you said right there at the end, you know, where 
six and a half months on, right? Mm-hmm. No accountability, which is a big no-no in human rights. There's mm-hmm. no justification. Yeah. There's no real explanation. We still don't really know the true extent of how this blast happened, the true extent of just the toll of devastation. We'll really never know because, as you're saying, mm-hmm. it struck the country, the nation, to its absolute core. Even wider than just the country and the nation, it struck the diaspora to its core. Six and a half months on now, where where is Beirut? Where is Lebanon? What what? As best as you feel you can describe it, what is the sense and the feeling that you get? <laughs> um, I feel like I'm going to cry. I'm sorry. I, it's okay. Um, it it's in a very bad place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in a place I've never seen it before. Sometimes when I think of Beirut, I think that we're in this very deep hole and we're just scratching to, to get to the top just to see some light. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine last week who'd moved to Dubai for work, which should also mention a lot of youth have now moved straight to Dubai. It's a pipeline straight from universities to um, Dubai. And um, she was saying that she's exhausted. Like she, she can't think about it anymore. She spends too much of her time thinking, what can I do? What's there left to be done? What hasn't been done? And it, I'm almost always on the brink of belie- believing that there's no more hope. But then I, I, I just look at those pictures from the blast and I think, no, there is. Because people showed up from all around the country to come and clean up after this blast, which is unique. It, you know, I, I even looked into it afterwards and I was thinking, did people do that after 9-11? So after the um, planes crashed, people come out the next day and prepare food and serve it to people and, and dig through the debris and report on who was missing. No, they didn't. And I, I'm not trying to compare any population to another. I'm just, I just see that as some sort of semblance of hope. But where Lebanon is today, my grandmother, just to put it into perspective, who has lived, she's about 78 right now. She's lived through the civil war, the Israeli invasion, the Israeli Hezbollah war, the war of 2008, Syrian refugee crisis. I really can go on through what this woman has lived through and seen. Um, This woman says to me, this is the worst she's ever seen this country. And I'm talking about a woman who's had to hide in her staircase because of the civil war and who had to shelter her kids from bullets going through their house. She's telling me now that this is the worst that she's seen it. And she always says it's because she's never seen people beg. She always, that for her, it's, it's the final frontier. People are begging, people are asking for medicine. People can't afford food. Um, you know, the price of bread, bread right now is about 2000 which, you know, it's double the price. And just to put it into perspective, 2000 is a lot of money. It, like, I, I don't know how to compare it to anything, but 2000 for bread for someone who might be pushing a fruit cart or who might be selling something on the highway is, you know, that's probably what they'll make in a day. And it's unimaginable to me that people here are starving. I always knew there was always poverty in my country. I'm in a country where Palestinians and Syrian refugees live in camps that are overcrowded 
and not taken care of. And Lebanese, the Lebanese government has no authority over it, meaning that they also can't work. They don't have a right to their home. So poverty is always inevitable in situations like this. But humanitarian organizations have always been here to kind of mitigate the situation. I don't think humanitarian organizations can help us out of this. Because even if right now I believe the IMF or the World Bank are working on um, distributing some money to the most um, impoverished communities in Lebanon, and that money amounts to $12 a month because of inflation and because of where our economy is now. So that $12 is not enough to feed a family. And I think I'm a US citizen, I'll put that out there. I'm a US citizen. I was entitled to two of the stimulus checks this year. That experience as well of, I just get, I believe the first check was $1,200 and the second check was $600. Some people in Lebanon are US citizens as well, quite a lot actually, like we have a huge diaspora community. The fact that some people are getting that from governments they've probably never even worked for or never even in a country they've never even lived in. For instance, I didn't move to the, I didn't live in America up until last January and I was still entitled to those stimulus checks. While people here are getting $12 I feel like a fraud and I'm sure a lot of people feel like a fraud. And I think that places us at, a, at an even greater distance from this country and trying to see like a, some sort of tunnel of light out of this is very difficult because I even feel like, and this is something I worry about as well. And I, I think a lot of other people worry about it, that my ideas will not translate well because I'm not experiencing what a large part of a population is experiencing someone can look at me and think you're getting money from the US government for what, living there for eight months. I've lived in this refugee camp. I've lived in the city. I've lived, you know, in the small little town for so many years and my government is giving me $12. And so that, help, that helplessness grows and it starts to feel like, who are we going to listen to? Who represents the face of Lebanon? And I think the blast should have six and a half months later, should have, we should have reached a point where we all came together. We, we, we dropped our identities. We dropped our religious affiliations. Um, I mean, in the public domain, you know, people can definitely stick to the religious yeah. affiliations <laughs> privately, <laughs> do what they want. But I wanted to believe so badly that after this, that was the end, that the mm -hmm. people in power would, would, would resign. They're still there. They're, they're, they're still running the country still taking vaccinations whenever they need to or want to. And I haven't given up hope yet, but I, right the, the, at this moment in time, I can't see a way out. I hope it'll come to me in a few weeks or months or years, but right now I don't see a way out and I'm desperately, and I think everyone in Lebanon as well is desperately trying to, to find some sort of way out, even if it literally means leaving the country. Um, so yeah, that is the very sad state of affairs. No, thank you. I think it's important that as many people as possible truly get a picture of, mm -hmm. of what life is like now. Um, just because like I say, we have these flashpoint moments in life and society and human rights or whatever, where there's that big moment and we all sensationalize mm. it. I had never seen more news out of Lebanon, out of Beirut as a city than I did on the days and weeks following that blast, right? 
and we're you know months removed and like we said there's a whole nation that is left behind there are people who are left behind and and we don't necessarily talk about the violation that is done to them um mm. just even the sense of the the dna of their the dna of their their country's culture changing is a violation especially when they've had nothing to do with it it was forced upon them um mm -hmm. And I want to talk, if we can, about one of those compounding factors, because you mentioned it a few times now, and I think it's, it's central to everything, is the economy and the mm -hmm. economic aspect of, of the situation in the nation, and also just globally. Um, you mm -hmm. know, as you were speaking there, you talked about the fact that you are Lebanese, but you're also a U.S. citizen. So the mm -hmm. time that there are people in the nation who are getting $12, you were able to get stimulus checks from the U.S. government. Um, mm -hmm when we were in our planning meeting, we were talking and you said something that was just so profound to me and I wonder if we could get into it a little bit more. You said that the global economy is a myth. Mm -hmm. And I literally sat back in my chair and was like, oh my God, what, what a statement. But I think it's yeah. so poignant. I think, you know, we look at it now, we look at when this pandemic started, one of the things from major nations was all, you know, we need to keep going to preserve the economy. You know, I, I speak in as a British citizen, I remember Prime Minister Boris Johnson going out in a speech and saying, well, all the world is closing down, we're going to stay open and we're going to beat them in the economy. And well, how did that work for him, right? But <laughs> this idea of a myth of a global economy where people aren't experiencing the global economy in the same mm -hmm. way and it's really affecting them. Can you just speak, you know, more to what you meant about that, but also, like you say, how the economy has been a compounding factor and the issues that are at face um, right now within the nation? Of course. So I think when I made that statement, um, we were talking about how half of the world was talking about living paycheck to paycheck. And then the other half of the world was living by day to day. Um, you know, you'd be so fortunate in Lebanon to live from paycheck to paycheck. Um, and, you know, that already makes you part of a certain class if you live from paycheck to paycheck. That's probably part of the professor, lawyer, um, computer science, scientists, class of people who maybe work for an international organization or uh, a regional organization, for instance, with one of the GCC countries. Um, I think that the, that the global economy is a myth because I see people who work and live off of the money they make that day. And when you're talking about lockdown and when you're talking about a global pandemic, people love to throw in the word global pandemic as if we're all experiencing it in the same way, which we're not. And I think that's exactly why I think the global economy is a myth because we're not experiencing the economy in the same way. Um, you know, that person, that, that let's take somebody who sells pomegranates in a cart. I say this because there's always a guy selling pomegranates in a cart next to my building. So that person, depending on how many pomegranates I decide to want that day, that is his takeaway. That's his takeaway that day. He does not rely on an organization. He does not have a credit card. He does not have a debit card. He has nothing set in to transfer him a certain amount at the end of the month, right? And when the pandemic was happening, a lot of people were talking about um, furlough schemes, unemployment schemes, um, having access to that, keeping up the economy, uh, working from home. All these, all these things that. I read about them and I watched them happen and I heard the stories from my friends who worked from home in England, who were working from home in the US, who were working from home in Spain. So some people, like some teachers that I worked with who may have caught COVID and had to stay home. And all I could think about was that doesn't exist in Lebanon. That just, that doesn't, you know? Like 
I, someone who works as a hairstylist in Lebanon, that's a huge industry here in Lebanon, like the beauty industry. Um, if the country shuts down, there is no backup scheme for them. There is, there is nothing, there is no safety nets. Um, there is no organization stepping in to, to ensure that they have milk for their child or, you know, well-connected internet for them to learn like school online. And so while people were, ta were talking about getting 80% of their income from a furlough scheme, for instance, I was still thinking about people in Lebanon who don't live a life like that. People who live day by day, people who sometimes just rely on the kindness of strangers. Sometimes I don't want a pomegranate, but I'll get a pomegranate because you know what? <laughs> Why not? Because I can. And in my classes at university, when we used to talk about this global economy, and thankfully I went to a pretty leftist university where in which they would always say, you know, question what you're hearing, question this idea of a global economy. I think most obviously, most visibly, it came out during the pandemic that there is a divide. There are the people who had a home, who had some sort of safety net, who had a backup scheme um, in the midst of this. And there were people who could not afford to not go to work. There were people who had no choice but to show up at work and however much they made that day was what they were gonna have on the table that week. And when people talk about like returning, you know, to business, like to, I don't know what the saying is, business as usual. Yeah, like going back to the world as it was, even after this whole spectacle, you know, this pandemic has given us this whole spectacle to show us the world does not work the way you think it does. The world has never worked the way, the way the world has never worked the way you thought it did. Um, while one is, you know, working from home, another one has to be in dangerous situations, not even as an essential worker. These people on the streets are not essential workers, but work is essential for them. It, it, you know, they, they, they just, they need whatever they can get that day. And I'm like, we're having these like multiple conversations all at once. And I'm thinking, have, have we not learned at this point that there is no global operation behind this? Um, and when we're talking about saving the economy or like fixing the economy or returning back to what once was for your country. Yeah, for the UK and for the United States and for Spain as well. But that, that's not the global economy because that doesn't trickle down to Lebanon. That doesn't get us out of the situation that we're in. And I know that a lot of Lebanon's economic problems today are also, they're self-engineered. We essentially ran a financial engineering scheme that led to the hyperinflation we see today. Um, but it almost upsets me. You know, I want the world to go back to what it once was as well, because, you know, that's a coping mechanism. It's a sense of security. But it would really upset me that if we come out out of all of this and still accept the things that we used to believe in a pre-COVID world. And I think we are slowly moving to this idea of this global economy only benefits a few. And, you know, tell anybody this who's read leftist literature, they know this, this is an accepted fact, but I'm not talking about the people who know about this literature. I'm talking about the people who, you know, maybe studied 
STEM at university and you, they, they accept things as they come. I think we need to chat, like people who maybe are not involved in politics or this kind of thinking, I think we always have to challenge what we hear from our politicians. For instance, what you said about Boris Johnson. And I hope more people start to question it and challenge it and think, is this really the way the world is or is this the way my world is? And yeah, I don't, I, I wanna, I, that's, that's what I would want my takeaway to be. Uh, I love what you said right there. I loved all of what you said. And what you said right there at the end just gets me to, you know, such a point that uh, where I'm at with, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of human rights, right? People are starting to question things more, right? Starting mm -hmm. to question their leaders, starting to question things that they see. And I think that's good. What is great is when people challenge things. Because mm -hmm. you can question things internally. To challenge, you have to do something externally, yes. right? And that's one of the reasons I even began this podcast is because I want people to continue to question, but to mm -hmm. get to the point where their questions are so mind-numbing that they have to ask them out loud. And you can only ask them out loud to the people who are, who need to be questioned, right? Mm -hmm. So I like I, I look at the leaders here in the United Kingdom and I, I'm seeing more and more people question, why are we still in a, why are we in a third lockdown? And there are other nations in Europe who aren't, you know, why, mm -hmm. why, why did you have a furlough scheme and then you pulled it back so dramatically? Why is it that you didn't go to these <laughs> initial meetings when the pandemic started? And now, you know, at, at the time when the, the WHO was saying, don't touch anyone, you were saying, I went into this possible ward and shook everyone's hand, right? People are questioning more, but I think the next step really internationally across the board is to challenge more, especially like you said, this economy piece because it's, it's so central to everything we do. I, I agreed with everything mm -hmm. that, that you said, the way the global economy works, it doesn't work for everyone. I think it's been, personally, it's one of the things I think has been one of the biggest failings of international governance post-World War II is that they've never actually found a coherent way to ensure that the economy is felt equally um, across the world, really, because there are some nations who just don't ever want that to be the case. Um, and I think that's very, very sad. And I think that's very troubling. But I think it's something that, you know, people across the board need to be wary of and mindful of and thinking about. Um, you look at all that we've talked about so far, and you look at where, like we say, where Beirut and where Lebanon is six and a half months on, what conclusions need to be drawn and what lessons need to be learned from the, from the fallout, from the blast and the fallout since what, you know, for example, how do human rights organizations and actors adapt and change in light of what we've seen, what's been done, what's not been done within the context of Beirut, um, Lebanon more generally? I think what needs to be done, and I'm seeing it happen, and I'm glad it is happening, we need to focus on getting the economy to a place where people can access their bank accounts. And I will never deny that. And I will never pretend like that's not top five on our list of priorities. But happily, what I'm seeing happen is human rights organizations are finally talking about people's mental health because that's how you save a people from its own nation or from its own states or from its own corruption. Because I think in the past, a lot of the focus was on basic necessities, right? Water, shelter, food, and education. 
right? Some sort of education at maybe a refugee camp or an asylum seeker camp, whatever it is. So now people are talking about what does that experience do unto a person and how does that shape the future of this country? And in the past, a lot of Lebanese people during the civil war, they just, they fled on ships or whatever they could to get to countries in Europe or countries in North America, countries in West Africa as well. So they got there and they just, they immediately created a new life. They forgot, forgot the past or the trauma that they were experiencing. And I think that's why history has repeated itself in Lebanon. We don't acknowledge our history. We don't even learn about our civil war. We don't know and don't agree upon who's the victor of what, as though there are any victors. Personally, I think we're all losers in this situation. And as a result, we still live in fear of another civil war unleashing itself. And that means the civil war never really ended. If you still fear another civil war, then the civil war has not ended. Um, and now I think there's been a different approach and there's been more organizations in Lebanon who have been focusing on mental health and they're coming together and they're saying, if we want to save this country, if we want to save the people, let's focus on getting them to talk about what happened, which is something that has never happened before. People in Lebanon, it's this whole, you know, thing about us being resilient. Oh, the Lebanese people are so resilient. They've gone through so much. They are in the most strategically and geopolitically unfortunate location ever and yet they still they pers they persevere and they get up in the morning and look even after the explosion people went down and they cleaned things up like it this this phoenix this this idea of the phoenix that rises again and again it, it's a it's a motif that has followed me throughout my whole life um and that's not a healthy motif people should not be this resilient people should talk about the civil war people should cry about the civil war you know my grandma lost a brother she she experienced so much and she still won't talk about it and, and you see that in the older generations. And the great thing about the newer generations is that we have social media, is that we have a platform to say, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling anxious. I can't hear a loud noise without thinking it's another bomb or another explosion. And I really hope that organizations like the United Nations or like UNICEF or other big organizations that I can't think of right now follow in suit and recognize that if you want to change whatever happens to, to these people, if you want them to rethink that experience and turn it into some sort of positive outcome, you need to focus on their mental health. And right now I'm, I'm hoping that the people of my generation are open enough to discuss it. You know, I'm always pushing a friend of mine or, or somebody, or even my mother. I was like, go to therapy if you need therapy. I'm, I'm such a, I think because I was Growing up, I was very, I was very Americanized. I mean, if it wasn't clear by my accent, I was extremely Americanized. I went to an American school in Lebanon and I proceeded to study in the UK. So very much so I had access to literature that perhaps someone who studied a public school here, um, which is about 30% of the population or someone who may have studied at an Arabic or French school, didn't read the same literature that I did, maybe different. And as a result, I saw that in countries like the US or the UK, things like alcoholism, the stigma is not there. People talk about it in the open and they're not ashamed to it. And people, I loved, I, that was something I really loved about that kind of culture that I, I'd read about because people 
talked about it with no shame. And people here, they will not talk about things purely because they fear that shame. They fear that judgment from others. And I'm just sitting thinking, none of us are in a good position. There is no judgment. There is no shame. We all went through that loss together. We all lost somebody that we may have known, or we lost, even if we don't directly know them, we lost a part of our community to the misgovernance and the corruption of our states. There is no shame. Talk about it. Cry about it. Speak about it. Do whatever you need to do. And I think um, my greatest hope lies in those organizations. And um, I mentioned this in one of my notes, but a, a girl that I knew that I went to school with who we used to work together, um, her name is Luma Makari. She is starting an online mental health platform called Algorithm where she is, you know, she's focusing on how do we bring people together and address the elephant in the room. And, you know, I think Luma is only a year or two younger than me and she's already doing this. So I can only hope that such an organization is not even looked at like hesitantly in the future, that people are okay to sign up for these platforms to talk about what happens. And I think that's where progress comes from. It really does come from, from addressing your history, addressing the past, addressing the grievances of the past. I think without that, you can't build a future. And maybe there, this is too much for a human rights organization to take on because some of these tend to be like a one size fits all tailored approach, no, not a tailored approach, a one size fits all approach. And I think the direction they should go is in a, to more, of a more tailored approach. So if you're gonna open up some sort of center or cultural awareness um, center where people can come through and, and learn about who they are and learn about their history and learn about change and learn about these pillars of a great state and also learn how to take care of themselves, which I don't think is done enough. And I've worked in refugee camps all across Lebanon. Like I've worked in Marlias and I've worked in Burj Barajne. And both of them had some great funded resources from UNRWA and uh, UNICEF, but they were always like education, great, not even you know doubting that for a second, social schemes. But I mean, some of the children I was working with were speaking of things they couldn't even comprehend. You know, they, they were, they were, you'd ask them, oh, where are you from? I'm from Palestine, but I've been born and raised here my whole life. And they're not understanding, I'm a refugee. I'm, I'm somebody who is here because I'm a refugee. They don't even have the words to, to articulate who they are, what they identify as, what that means for them. Do they know that the fact that they are Palestinian means they will not be able to find legal work in Lebanon? And I wish more, resources went to that because they need the knowledge and then they need the coping mechanism and the healthy coping mechanism. Otherwise, naturally people turn to things that they probably shouldn't turn to, whether that be drugs or educational disruption and mental dysregulation. Like it, without mental health support, I think it is statistically proven kids will, will mimic PTSD um, behavior in school-like situations. So they might have ADHD or they might drop out early. And going back to the thing we were talking about women's rights, um, and I know this is gonna be a very bold statement, women suffer the most in this country. And that is me saying that confidently, knowing that men in this country are known for being the ones who have to provide, and especially during an economic downfall, that such a, such a, 
pressure has led to two men in 2020 um, setting themselves on fire. And I still say that boldly because women time and time again have been at the hands of men who start war without considering their children, without considering their wives, without considering their family, because it's easier to start a war than to have a discussion and a diplomatic discussion. And so at a time like this, I'm thinking about a lot of the men who may have lost their job and can't, can't afford to, to provide for their family. And that's a huge part of their honor and a huge part of the, the masculine makeup of this country. But I'm ultimately thinking about the women who have to fear for the lives of their children, whether it comes from a blast or a gunshot or a bomb or an assassination. And they've been, you know, people like my grandmother or, or my, or even, you know, my aunts, they've been dealing with this since before 1975 and it's exhausting. And I'm fortunate enough to know that I may not be able to pass the citizenship to my children, but I can take my U.S. passport and live elsewhere where I will be treated equally. And I know that my hands are not, that my life is not in the hands of corrupt men. So yes, that's my my little feminist input. Men would rather go to war than have a conversation. That is, I'm plastering that everywhere. Because um, I say this confidently. I say and, this all the time. And it's so true. Like it's so true on so mm -hmm. many levels, on a national level, on a personal level, on an interpersonal level. Like guys, yep. would men would rather go to war with themselves internally mm -hmm. than just go and sit down and talk to someone, right? Yes. I, I, I really don't have words that could even match what you just said. Um, as we as we wind down, you know, one of the things I said that I want to make consistent on this podcast is to close with two questions. Mm -hmm. And this, this is the first. In your opinion, mm -hmm. what is the biggest structural impediment to positive human rights change right now? And this may be in the context of Beirut, it could be in the context of mm -hmm. Lebanon, it could be in the context of one specific issue, mm -hmm. or it could be more broadly, broadly on a global scale. But what do you think is the biggest structural impediment to positive human rights change? I think it was just what I was discussing, which was recognizing one's past and making peace with one's past. And I think at a time where social media distributes information in a way that it is unprecedented, that sort of peace is possible. We can openly talk about the wrongs and the grievances a country or individual or community has faced without feeling like, without feeling like this conversation will inevitably lead to conflict. And I think a big point I would go back to is the BLM protests back in May where people were coming out with history, facts, um, political events, and people were forced to make peace with their past because they were seeing it everywhere. You know, people had to accept that this is, you know, this is the history of America, this is the history of the UK, this is the history of Europe, this is the history of the Middle East. And unless you deleted social media, which I would think is a huge step to take just because you don't want to accept some of the things you saw on it, um, I think it pushed at least this upcoming generation and our generation in the right direction. And so I think the biggest impediment is rejecting your past 
I think you can also see it with things like cancel culture where people are like, oh no, we can't keep canceling people. Like we, we, we shouldn't be doing this. I'm thinking, fine, maybe the word canceling is the extreme for some people and they don't want to give up R. Kelly too easily. But at the same time, we need to, we need to accept people have pasts. We need to accept that we are all fallible human beings. And you know, our states are fallible states and our governments are not perfect. We weren't all social dem democratic states to begin with. So once we do that, I think you will see some sort of trickle down. I hate the word trickle down. I just think of trickle down economics, but you will see a trickle down from whether that's a governmental state led initiative down to the people. And I think a great example of this, by the way, is Germany. I always look at their example of the way that they've made peace with their past and I say made peace very loosely, but as in they've acknowledged what their past is and they've actually memorialized um, their past by talking about it openly, by informing the students, like German students about what their history is. And we could really learn a thing or two from them, whether it's in the human rights field or if it's in statecraft, whatever it may be. So many nations that, that have done that, you see positives. Japan as well, mm -hmm. another, another yes. nation which quote unquote lost the second world war which was forced to tell the, their story and look at how they've developed Rwanda um, and their nation and their development from the 1994 genocide. Um, mm -hmm. The exact same thing, acknowledging your transgressions as a nation to see how you can move yes. forward. And then you look conversely at nations that I'm, I'm part of, United Kingdom, the US, mm -hmm. who the same issues continue to crop up in every five-year cycle. Um, every five-year cycle. Same conversations. Um, so I'd hope that changes. I really do. Um, yeah. And to wrap up, and you may have touched on this already, but if you, if so, I'd love for you to go back over it. What, if anything, gives you hope for the future? This is a very simplistic answer, but my friends, yeah, and more specifically, my group of three friends in Lebanon. I think they are a constant reminder that I'm not alone in what I fight for. And I believe that everybody has that to an extent. There is a daily reminder to them in whatever form that their fight or their cause or their purpose is not, is not a lone pursuit. And I think in a difficult time like this, when I've almost a, you know, abandoned hope and said, you know, just a few weeks ago, something had happened and I was like, nope, I'm leaving this country. I can't be here anymore. And it was my friend, my friend Aya, who was like, no, you, you're going to stay. We're, we're going to fight and we're, and we're going to do this no matter what, no matter what anyone tells us. And I think it's really important, you know, as well, I'd like to mention my friends are extremely political and like intrusive and like very feminist in their ways. And you know, I'm fortunate enough to have like outspoken friends as well, but I think it's very important for people who want to enter the human rights field or the political field or anything in which the purpose or the end goal is to make some sort of difference on difference on whatever level or whatever scale. Um, having people that ground you and remind you what you're fighting for is very, very important because I have found myself once a month contemplating what I'm doing this for. And when you have people to balance you out and remind you, that's where my hope is. You know, the hope is that there are others like me, not just my friends. There were hundreds of people that went down to Beirut after that explosion. And I think just that image, which incidentally, one of my friends was that image that they took, they took a photo of her and they put her up on the newspaper. Um, that image of 
people abandoning whatever they had and just came down and all they could think about was saving the city or saving, you know, families and helping them. That is my hope. And it, it may be a small, tiny little thread, but it's all I have. And I, and I, and I think it's all a lot of people do still have and people or parents who may have lost their children. I think they hold on to the hope that things will be better. Um, and I'd hope that they also have people grounding them and reminding them why they fight for what they fight. Which by the way, I would lastly like to mention, there is a campaign going around about Lebanon asking for a UN investigation into the blast. And it has also been started by the parents of Alexandra Najjar, who was a child who lost her life. And um, that also gives me hope because they are still in Lebanon. Do you think, and I, and I was meant to wrap up now, but you've raised it, so I have to ask you, do you, how important do you think the international scene is to helping, but just helping the situation? How important or not important do you think that is? I don't think it's very important. I don't think justice will be done on the large scale. Um, I know the symbolism of getting the UN involved. I understand that, oh, you're getting a powerhouse of the United Nations involved. They're gonna go to the um, ICC. I don't think, you know, I think that's symbolic. I don't think it's actually um, an active way of dealing with the situation. There won't be justice until we replace the people who are in power and there won't be any sort of accountability until our own courts deal with the situation. We should have full faith in our own institutions, in our own judges, in our own supreme power to, to, do the, to, to go forward with this case impartially. And the fact that we don't is exactly why I don't think there will be any justice or accountability coming out of this case. Um, and I think we're working towards that. People are trying to find a way out and they're trying to, I don't think, I don't think people will rest until they, the people who committed the explosion are labeled and called out and sent to jail. But knowing the way Lebanon works and knowing how our system is built on essentially just who you know and how you can get out of things, we'll see what happens because I think we don't even know. So in 2004, our prime minister was assassinated and there was a whole, about 14 years, something like that, investigation from the UN. And they only just came out recently with the results and they said it was inconclusive. So it, it didn't really make a dent on anything. There can be no justice without accountability. And I really hope that mm -hmm. one day the international governance knows that. I hope the national level government learn that and more importantly i hope that the general public learn that and they push mm -hmm. for that in every single thing that they do mm -hmm. um tracy Joar, thank you so much thank, thank you, you. So i'm so honored to be on here thank you so much for for joining me and and being as open and as honest as you are it was absolutely amazing um is there anything that you know you feel is important that you just want to raise any organizations or any causes that you just want to speak about before we close just so the people are aware just for any lebanese citizen or diaspora lebanese citizen living abroad the three organizations i would recommend are idrak minds and embrace idrak is spelled i-d-r-a-a-c i think they're great and i think they're definitely headed towards the right direction for where um, mental health resources should be in Lebanon. Perfect. Um, those organizations, I'll also put them in the description so you can mm -hmm. have a look at those right down there. But again, Tracy, thank you so much. Um, thank you for joining me. And I hope you've all enjoyed um, 
this episode of The Conversation. Thank you. Peace and love.